0: This morning we are going to be in Colossians chapter three and continue our series in the book of Colossians. So you can go ahead and open up there, Colossians three. Now a few years ago I was in the uh, in the marketplace in sales, and one fall I was in uh, Scottsdale, Ar- Arizona for a for a, a government sales summit. It was our, our company, all the all the federal sales employees were there, and. I ended up taking part in a team building activity. And so we were all broken down in these small groups. And we were given a, uh, it was a cardboard box, a piece of string, or a, kind of a roll of string, a um, paper cup, an egg, a 10-foot piece of PVC pipe, duct tape. And our objective was to take whatever the next 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it was to build some contraption and see how many times you could get the egg to drop without it breaking. And so my team, we, we got right at it and we I mean we tried to make this thing ten foot high and and did all this stuff and and uh, when it came time to drop our egg down, we kind of put it up in there and the whole thing just fell over. And there was one of my coworkers there and he he was just in disbelief at our inability to address the foundation at the very beginning. And so if you looked at our foundation we had this cardboard box on a on pavement with duct tape, like taped, trying to tape the box down. And that was our foundation. And he just kept saying over and over again, we're only as good as our foundation. How could we not get the foundation right? Why did we not start with the foundation? Now, this passage that we're going to be looking at together today speaks to the foundation of our church in many ways, what we are as worshipers. It provides a foundation for what we do when we gather together and what we do when we head home for the rest of the week. It's a passage like this, Colossians 3, that that helps us get our foundation right. Now, since we've been a little on again and off again with our our series on Colossians, let me just bring you up to speed with where we've been. Colossians was written to a church in Colossae, uh, started by a guy named Epaphras. Paul had never visited this Colossian church. He He didn't know these people. But Epaphras had heard the gospel preached by Paul in Ephesus, and had gone and told his his family and his friends, those in Colossae, and a church started. God started supernatural, something supernatural out of out of Epaphras's sharing of the gospel. But after a short while, false teachers crept in to the church. And they they were telling the Colossian church that, you know, like all the stuff that Epaphras is telling you, it's it's fine. It's okay. What Paul has told what Paul has told Epaphras, that's all good. But you need something more. And they use this word about fulfillment, and they talked about fullness. And what Paul has told you, what Epaphras has told you, it's not, not all you need for a full life. And so Epaphras is concerned about this, and he goes and tells Paul, while Paul is in Rome in prison, and he tells Paul that he's concerned about the Colossian church, and Paul is equally concerned. And so he writes this letter that we hold in our hands, Colossians. Paul begins this letter by thanking God for these people. He thanks God for their faith, for their hope, for their love. And he prays for them. It says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And then Paul goes into, the rest of chapter 1, Paul goes into holding up Christ as all in all. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Christ is all, is what Paul is saying. Christ is all you need. And Paul defends his ministry to the church by saying, this is what's defined me, proclaiming Christ. This is what I'm all about. So therefore, as you received Christ Jesus in chapter 2, verse 6, walk in Him. That's Paul's exhortation to the Colossian Christians. Walk in Him. And after laying out a series of of warnings to the Colossian church for things to guard against, legalism to guard against, things that undermine the preeminence of Christ, Paul goes into at the beginning of chapter 3, set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on Christ. And now over the past several weeks, we've been in this chapter in Colossians 3. In the beginning of it, Paul is, is writing and telling the Colossian Christians to put off certain sins. And as he gets into it, really what, what holds these things together is the idea of unity. All these sins undermine unity. They undermine Christian community. And then in verse 12, he gets into putting on certain things. These are things you put on in order to cultivate community. So we must walk in unity with one another. Look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. This is who you were outside of Christ. Then verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These, all these sins, they're, they're community or relational sins. They affect other people. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. In, in the Christian community, in the church, in other words, for us today, there's, there's no distinction along ethnic or class lines. We are new people, and so we cast aside all prejudices and divisive thoughts and and practices that arise. And as new people, with our minds set on things above, we practice that which cultivates and preserves unity. So in verse 12, Paul writes, "...put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just like the put-offs we just looked at, these are also, these put-ons, they're also virtues lived out in community. They're relational. We cannot be compassionate if there's no one we're in relationship with to show compassion to. We cannot be kind if we don't interact with anyone in need. Humility, patience, forgiveness, love, they're all intended to affect other people. These are the things we're called to in a church. This is how God calls us to relate to one another. And then verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. This is what holds us together in one body, the peace of Christ. And when the peace of Christ characterizes the church, we will also then be a grateful people. These are the things that God calls us to in order to cultivate unity in the church. But Paul doesn't stop there. Now he's going to continue building on this list, and that brings us to our passage today. And here we'll see Paul address both our, our gathered worship, what we do when we're together, in verse 16, and our, our scattered worship, what we do when we leave this place, in verse 17. Our call is always to be worshipers. Worshipers of the one true God. And Paul here wants us to see what that looks like both when we are gathered together and when we are apart. So this morning's message is entitled, Biblically Shaped Worship. And biblically shaped worship centers itself on the praise of God, for the glory of God, and the good of God's people. Biblically shaped worship centers itself on the praise of God, for the glory of God, for the good of God's people. So let's look together at Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17. This is the inerrant, infallible, eternal Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Thanks be to God for his word. Now in this passage, we're going to approach it a little bit differently this morning, and we're going to look at ten priorities, ten priorities for biblically shaped worship. We're going to walk through this passage really just phrase by phrase, considering each of these priorities. So since we're going to be here for most of the rest of the day, let's go ahead and get started. <laughs> no, I'm going to spend the majority of my time on this first one, and then we'll move somewhat quicker through the, uh, through the other nine. Biblically shaped worship. All of them are going to start biblically shaped worship. So priority number one, biblically shaped worship is centered on Christ. Centered on Christ. Paul begins with this call. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now this is a call for both gathered worship, what we do here, and scattered worship. What we do when we go home. This is the objective of our lives. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is similar to Paul's call at the beginning of chapter 3 that we just looked at. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above. The Word of Christ is quite simply that Word about Christ. That's what the Word of Christ is. That Word about Christ. It's the Gospel. It's the message of what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. This message takes center stage in the life of the church and in our own lives as individuals. The Word of Christ, it entails the entirety of biblical revelation because the Bible is concerned with Christ. It points forward to Christ. It tells about Christ. It points back to Christ. It tells us about how our lives are to be shaped by Christ. We see Christ most clearly in God's Word. So let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like for the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly? Well, in the first place, if the Word of Christ is to dwell in you richly, it has to enter you. It has to enter into you. And that means you must read it. Read it every day. Read it in the morning. Read it at night. Listen to it when you drive. Read it with your friends. Read it around your dinner table with your family. The Word of Christ must first enter you in order to dwell in you richly. It has to enter you before it can dwell in you richly. Now too often we can approach God's Word as if it's a task to be finished and get beyond. It's something you have to do if only to get on to the good stuff, whether it be a a devotional book or just the rest of your day. I know for me, I can come down in the morning, come down into my study and open up God's Word and just think about, all right, what do I need to read? Get through my chapters and now let me move on to Kind of the meteor stuff. No, there is nothing more precious than God's Word. The Word of God is unlike any other book. Reading God's Word is unlike any other task. Listen to Charles Spurgeon addresses here. He says, When most people read the Bible, they appear to be anxious to get the unpleasant task finished and put away. In some cases, they seem to think that they've performed a very proper action. But they have not been in the least affected by it, moved by it, stirred by it. Yet, if there is any book, if there is any book that can thrill the soul, it is the Bible. If we read it aright, we shall lay our fingers among its most wondrous harp strings and bring them out from, bring out from them matchless music such as no other instrument in the world could ever produce. There is no book so fitted or so suited to us as the Bible is. There is no book that knows us so well. There is no book that is so much at home with us. There is no book that has so much power over us if we will but give ourselves up to it. Yet often, we only let it look in at our window or knock at our door, instead of inviting it to enter our very heart and soul. And therefore, we miss its power. Can you identify with that this morning? Often you just let God's Word look in at your window or just knock at your door. Brothers and sisters, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's no truth more powerful, no words more precious, no book more life-giving than the Word of God, and it must enter into you. Now in the second place if the Word of Christ is to dwell in you richly, it must remain there. It must enter into you and it must remain there to dwell in you is for it to take up residence in you to abide in you to live in you it remains and continues in you this phrase dwell in you richly it points to an ongoing and permanent place in the individual's life and in the life of the church it should always be there it should always be there in abundance it should always be there in clarity should always be there, remaining in us. Grace Church, let us be be a Bible-bleeding people. Let us be a community marked by those who, when faced with the challenges of life, when faced with unbelief or battling pride or lust, when grieving, suffering, or persecuted, when the torments of this life strike us, let us bleed God's Word. Let Bible come out of us. May the Word of God dwell in us richly in a way that truth springs from within us. Let us be those of whom it is evident that we have read, we have meditated on, feasted upon the hope we have in the Word of God. And when we are interacting with others, let the Word of Christ flow forth from our mouths because it dwells within us. Let us each... Come to our gathered worship. Each Sunday, longing, longing for the Word of Christ to dwell richly in us. Let us go to the Bible each morning, longing for the Word of Christ to dwell richly in us. Let us look forward with eager expectation to how He is going to be revealed to us whenever we gather. Brothers and sisters, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Second... Our second priority, biblically shaped worship, priority number two, is is shaping. Biblically shaped worship is shaping. And we see this here in the next phrase, teaching and admonishing. Paul writes that our singing, our singing is to teach and admonish. Our singing, it's not just about expressing praise to God, although it is that. It's also about education. Through our songs, we can be reminded of reality. We can be reminded of truth. Singing should remind us of God's greatness. It should remind us of our own sinfulness. It should remind us of the forgiveness we receive through Christ and of our appropriate response to these truths. Our gatherings, they function to reorient God's people to that which is really real. There's nothing more real than who God is. And we need to be given words that teach us about God, words that come alongside us in our discouragement, in our grief, in our sorrows, words that come alongside of us in our unbelief, in our in our trials, words that help us fight our sin. Our gathered worship is to be shaping. And if you notice this morning, that's that's just what we did this morning. That's what we do every Sunday when we gather. This morning, first song we sang, "How Great Is Your Faithfulness." That second verse. Everything changes, but you stay the same. Your word and kingdom endure. So we lean on the promise of all that you are and trust forevermore. What, what that verse is speaking to is God's immutability. He does not change. We're learning theology through the songs that we sing, and it's getting planted in our hearts as we sing. Similarly, we're, we're admonished, we're corrected when we gather together and we sing and we remind ourselves of these truths. Think about the song we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast. If you're here and you, you came in you're battling unbelief, and you're doubting God, and you're looking to yourself and, and what you need to do to change your circumstance, your situation, but you're failing. When I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. This song, it, it picks our chin up off of ourselves to look to Christ. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful paths, for my love is often cold, but He will hold me fast. It's so what we do when we sing. We teach and admonish. We remind ourselves of what is really real. So priority number two is, biblically shaped worship is shaping. Priority number three, biblically shaped worship is a community project. It's a community project. Teaching and admonishing one another. One another. While teaching and admonishing, it's certainly a primary task of the preacher of God's word, Here we see that it's also something for all believers. It's for each one of us. Paul isn't addressing just the preaching of God's Word when he says teaching and admonishing. He's talking about the community of God's people. So, teaching and admonishing one another, it's a a community project. It's something we all take part in. We sing to one another. Now, this can be kind of awkward in our individualistic society. But we sing to one another. Our singing isn't just, not just me and Jesus. Let this be a holy moment right now. Just me and Jesus. My eyes closed. I'm the only one in here. No. It's to one another. We have an opportunity to edify one another. To build one another up. So, while it's okay if you close your eyes when we sing, maybe most of the time you should have your eyes open. Because we are a body of believers. We are a family. We are a community that's been brought together together. In this case, to teach and admonish one another. To remind ourselves of what is true, what is real. When we keep our eyes open, we are encouraged by the body of believers we have been placed within. I mentioned this last week, but I I told a couple of the seminars that I was teaching this, I guess it was two weeks ago. I think I repeated it again this past week in Florida. But it's great and all to sing at these conferences. But I'm singing with a bunch of people I don't really know. But when we come Here, we can look around the room and we know what's going on in people's lives. And as we sing, and as I see Sandy Hall sing, How Great Is Your Faithfulness, when her husband just died within weeks. How that builds me up and how that puts my suffering in perspective. When I see Mike Stogsill sing with a heart of gratefulness to God as he suffers. What an encouragement that is. So as great as it is to sing with hundreds of people at a conference, how much better it is to sing in this room with these brothers and sisters that we know and that we live life with. We teach and admonish one another. So biblically shaped worship is a community project. Something we all take part in. Priority number four. Biblically shaped worship is approached soberly in all wisdom. Because we are the ones singing, singing in the gathered church, it brings with it dangers. There are many places where our priorities can become skewed, where we move away from what is most important. Singing in the church, it can be led poorly. It can be too emotional or not emotional enough. It can be too focused on music or performance. It can emphasize the wrong things. Our gathered worship, it requires wisdom. It's a wisdom that comes from above. And this necessitates for all of us a prayerful dependence on our part as worshipers. All of us must approach our task seriously. We don't gather together to hang out due to common interest or gather together to just experience a good time as we sing together. No, we gather to worship the one true and living God. So we must approach what we do soberly. We must approach what we do with prayerful dependence on God in all wisdom. So we've covered four so far. Biblically shaped worship is centered on Christ. Biblically shaped worship is shaping. Biblically shaped worship is a community project. Fourth, biblically shaped worship is approached soberly. Fifth, biblically shaped worship is sung. It's sung, singing. Beginning in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing, singing. Life in Christian community involves singing. Whether you can sing on key or whether you have the greatest voice in the world, it involves singing in the context of Christian community. Christians sing. We see this all throughout biblical history as God has saved his people, redeemed his people. We see it as God brings his people out of Egypt and delivers them from the bondage of slavery. And in Exodus 15, as they've crossed the Red Sea, as God has vanquished Israel's enemies, Moses leads the people in song. They sing. They look at the character of God and the work of God, and they sing and give thanks. In Deuteronomy 31, as the people are brought into the Promised Land, right before they're brought into the Promised Land, Moses is given one song. This is what God tells Moses. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouth, this song may be a witness for me. And that song, that the last thing that Moses did for the, the people of Israel was give them this song that reminded them of God's character. They reminded them of God's work. The Psalms, we can go through the Psalms. They implore us to sing. Psalm 100, come into His presence with singing. In Zephaniah 4.17, we see that God is a singing God. We sing before, because God first sang. Zephaniah 4.17 says, The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with not just singing, he will exalt over you with loud singing. We sing because God first sang. God's people are meant to be a singing people. So when we gather together, we sing. We sing. Biblically shaped worship is sung. Priority number six Biblically shaped worship is diverse in its expression. Diverse in its expression. We see this next. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul then describes more specifically what we are to sing. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, there's been ongoing debate since really the second century as to what this means, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs songs what is paul exactly referring to now since they have not been able to come to a consensus over the last 2000 years i don't have the answer for you but one commentator i think helpfully says it's attractive to identify psalms as songs based on scripture hymns as songs about christ and songs as spiritual songs as spontaneous compositions prompted by the spirit at the very least what we can say is that singing in the church should be diverse in its expression there should be various types of songs that we sing in our church. Maybe you're hearing you just like hymns. Or maybe you just like songs that you can hear on the radio. Or maybe you're only drawn to those songs that really speak of what we're called to do, what our response is. Or maybe you just want to sing about God's greatness. Can't we just look at God the entire time and just sing about God's greatness? Now all of that is fine. Any of those. They're fine for iTunes or Spotify. But in the church, there should be a breadth to what we sing. There should be diversity in the expression of our sung praise. Now just as no one would want to eat the same meal every day, every meal, every year, there should be diversity in the, in the song diet of our church. And there's, there's much to be appreciated here and much to be learned here as we sing songs that we would otherwise not be drawn to sing. So biblically shaped worship is diverse in its expression. Number seven, priority number seven. Biblically shaped worship is grateful. It's grateful with thankfulness in your hearts. The singing in the church should arise from hearts of thankfulness. And this should be reflected in the content of our songs. They must express thankfulness. But it's more than that. One commentator states this. Genuine Christian praise is not primarily a vehicle for the expression of spiritual aspirations and experiences, so much as a celebration of God's mighty acts in Christ. We should not come to our gathered worship begrudgingly or unhappily, but with joy and gratefulness. And this should show in what we do. We should see thankfulness on our faces. This past week, as I was in Jacksonville, and again, this, this was, a, it was a predominantly um, a group of African-American ministers. And they set the bar high when it comes to joyful expression through song. Whenever we gathered together, even in the preached word, there was just evident joy, visible joy. And in one of my seminars, I was talking about the problem with white worship leaders. And what we often do is and we stand up here and like, whether it be head down or just, we look angry. And it's like, I'm rejoicing in my heart. And we, and we think, I mean, it's about my heart. My heart is what matters. But this is not very encouraging and does not direct people's attention to God. So for each one of us, let's come with thankfulness in our hearts and let it show on our faces. Don't forget to let your face know what your heart is feeling. <laughs> now certainly, we want to express emotion appropriate for the moment. We don't just slap a smile on our face and say, yeah, I'm joyful. When inside there's, there's grief and there's anguish and there's sorrow or when we're singing about um, when, I, when, when my faith fails, when I fear my faith will fail. But when we get to Christ will hold me fast, yes, that's a reason for joy. But we want to express emotion that's appropriate, but what should overwhelmingly characterize our gatherings is joy. Joy, because we have a living God who has saved us from death, that has given us eternal life, has given us hope, has given us joy, has given us peace. We have A lot to be thankful for. Not just a lot. We have an unimaginable amount to be thankful for. So let it show from our hearts on our faces. Priority number eight, our biblically shaped worship is God focused. It's to God. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our singing, our gatherings, they should be focused on God. It's a real encounter with God when we gather together. We're not just going through the emotions. We're not just looking for a a good time or a few moments of camaraderie. We are singing to the true and living God. We sing to and through the Son of the glory of the Father in the power of the Spirit. We sing to and through the Son of the glory of the Father in the power of the Spirit. He is the object of our praise. He is the object of our thoughts. He is the object of our affections. It's about Him, not us. We are to point others to God. And we do this corporately. We are to point others to God, not vie for the attention of others. Because we're not the point. We're pointers. We are signposts, not the destination. In all that we do, we want to seek to point others to God. And this begins with our own focus So biblically shaped worship is God-focused. It's centered on God. And priority number nine, biblically shaped worship, is all of life. All of life. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And whatever you do in word or deed, worship in church should lead to worship beyond the church. We, don't, we are not just Sunday morning worshipers, but we worship as we leave this place, as we go home, as we go to work. Paul writes, whatever you do, whatever you do, that's pretty all-encompassing, right? Whatever. I don't think you do anything that is not included in whatever you do. It includes everything. But Paul goes on, whatever you do in word, in word, in all that we say, everything that comes out of our mouths, all that we teach, all that we sing, whatever you do in word or deed, in all that we do, everything that we engage in, in every way we spend our time, our energy, all our plans and decisions, whatever you do in word or deed, we are to worship. We are to worship. And finally, biblically shaped worship, priority number 10, is in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. In Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything is done in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. It's not in us, through us, or for us. It's for Him. We do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, it might be a little uncomfortable, but think about the implications of this for you, even today. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you approach your afternoon this way? This afternoon? Do you approach this afternoon in this way? Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that, that phrase, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, what it means is, do you do everything for his sake, for the sake of Jesus? Oftentimes as Christians, we compartmentalize our lives into sacred and secular spaces. When I come to church, that's sacred. If I go to care group, that's sacred. If I'm reading my Bible, that's kind of that's sacred. That's, kind of, that's my Christian activity. That's my worship. And then when I go to work, that's secular. That's when I'm, when I'm watching the game, that's, that's secular. Now, this may not be a conscious thought for you, but that's how we often approach our life. We think, here's my worship over here, and then here's how I spend the rest of my time. But this manner of thought, this manner of thought is contrary to Scripture and it's contrary to the Lordship of Christ. Doing something in the name of Jesus means you do it for the sake of Jesus. It's an acknowledgement that He indeed is Lord over all. And we do what we do for His glory. Everything we do has its purpose in glorifying Christ. So when you think about your afternoon, approach it in a way. Am I doing what I'm doing? in order to glorify Christ? When you go to work tomorrow morning, am I doing what I do to glorify Christ? Any conversation with others that you have, am I doing what I do? Am I saying what I say for the glory of Christ? Your interactions with your kids or your your friends or your spouse, am I doing it in a way that glorifies Christ? Now this is a standard that is ridiculously high. And we fail... And we struggle with this. But this is our our call. As those who are in Christ, this is how we are to live. We are to live out our identity as those in Christ in all things. Now, we don't live out this identity in order to earn something. We don't live out this identity for in order to gain something from Christ. We live out this identity because we are in Christ. This is our response to Christ. Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So in whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Before you post to Facebook or Instagram, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the sake of Jesus. Before you speak to your coworker or customer, do all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Before you watch the game this afternoon, do all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Before you eat a meal, do all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All that we do, whether gathered together or scattered, whether in corporate worship or individual worship, all that we do, we are to do for Him. Set your mind on things that are above Biblically shaped worship comes to a place of gratitude that is verbalized, that is heartfelt, that is expressed as we place our hope and trust in Christ. There's the the simple hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things on earth will grow strangely dim. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Biblically shaped worship centers itself on the praise of God for the glory of God and the good of God's people. That's what biblically shaped worship is all about. For the praise of God, for the glory of God, and the good of God's people. For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.